Well, good morning. I guess I'm speaking to the cream of the crop this morning. And, uh, you know, I have a double reason to go home, go home to be with my wife and also to get some better weather. What you all consider just entering into the vestibule of winter is would be for us some of the worst winter weather that we would have. And it lasts so long. <laughs> you all are a hearty bunch. It does actually get down into the teens occasionally, but almost never does it stay below freezing during the day. Well, yesterday uh, we were talking about uh, the inspiration of the Bible, and we believe God is the source of Scripture and that He superintended the writing of Scripture so that the Bible is the Word of God in the words of man. And it's written in a specific historical and cultural uh, real-life context. Consequently, the Bible is both human and divine. And interpreting the Bible, then, begins with accepting that truth regarding the nature of Scripture, that Scripture is actually a, a supernatural uh, book, yet it is not otherworldly. It was not dropped out of heaven on tablets of gold written in some kind of code language. So our second interpretive principle last evening was that we follow the rules of interpreting human language because that's what the Bible is. It is human language. The third principle then dealt with some of the interpretive aspect of the fact that it is uniquely a divine book like no other book of the Bible. And so we talked about, uh, well, actually talked about this yesterday morning, but yesterday evening perhaps just a, a reference but anyway, we talked about it yesterday morning about the progressive revelation of the Bible, the unity that there is in the Bible. There's disunity and there's unity within, within the Bible. And the fact that the Bible is a progressive revelation, uh, it has overarching unity, but yet there is a very significant watershed between the Old Testament and the New Testament does uh, give us a an interpretive framework from which to to understand the Bible. And then we talked about uh, something that is unique to the Bible as the Word of God, and that is a predictive prophecy. Now, the fourth aspect, the principle, as we finish up interpreting the Bible, is that uh, it deals with the fact that biblical interpretation is a spiritual as well as a human endeavor. <clears throat> Second Corinthians or First Corinthians, Brother Lyle referred to, to this in a comment uh Yesterday, but the Bible is spiritually discerned, and so uh, it is more than just a, a an unbeliever uh, understanding the text. There's there's more to it than that. There is there is a a uh, there is a human element, but there is a spiritual element as well, and so. Our fourth main point in interpreting the Bible is that interpret the Bible conscious of human limitation. Conscious of human limitation. Whether we like to admit it or not, none of us are up to understanding perfectly the meaning intended by the biblical authors. Uh, none of us in and of ourselves. And since that's, since that's true, we need to rely on prayer and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'd like for us to go to 1 John, uh, 1 John chapter 2, 
And here we have an interesting, uh, I'm, I'm just going to snatch these two verses here, 1 John 2, 26 and 27. And uh, there's something interesting about this passage in that it illustrates several things, several things that we've talked about. Uh, it illustrates not taking a verse uh, out of its context. It illustrates interpreting the obscure in light of, of what is clear. And it illustrates that no passage is contradictory when it's properly interpreted. And so look what it says. Uh, and these things I have written to you concerning them that seduce you, but the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you, and you need not. You need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, even as it hath taught you, you shall abide in him. And so is this passage indicating that we uh, we don't need help from, from other people. Now, I, I, I think it would just be right, Brother Martin, when it says ye, that that is the plural. Uh, and so it is talking about that we as a body... Uh, the context is that we don't need to be intimidated by all these false teachings that we as a body have the Holy Spirit. It's not just me as individually has the Holy Spirit, but we as the body have the Holy Spirit and we have one another to help us. And so we need to rely on prayer and an illumination of the Holy Spirit, first of all, just ourselves individually. Now, I want to come back to this, but the second thing I'd like to say is that we need to maintain an attitude of humility. Uh, we as individuals need to be humble about our own ability to to fully understand what what is is going on in terms of, of, of the communication of, of the Word of God, of the meaning of the Word of God, and we need thoroughly to value the consensus of the brotherhood. Now, just as we as individuals are ultimately responsible for our salvation, uh, I need to make choices as an individual about my salvation, and I also, am, in a sense, am the ultimate arbiter of the meaning of Scripture. I have to make a decision. Am I going to accept this interpretation of Scripture, or am I not? But yet, that interpretation needs to be informed it needs to have a consensus, uh, be informed by the consensus of the brotherhood. And so that's really what we do in Bible study on Sunday morning, for instance. We have Sunday school, and a good Sunday school is discussing the meaning of the Scripture. We are gathering a consensus. And so one person puts their uh, thoughts forward, and another. And have you ever noticed how that in a good Sunday school discussion, your own... Uh, you, you you find yourself your your own mind is stimulated, and and you're you're going to places or it's uncovering things that you hadn't thought about before, and so in the interpretation of scripture, it is a spiritual process. It is a process using the intellect and understanding of other people, and we need this we need this stimulation uh, from one another, but yet we don't need the input of of those who would seduce us. We have within the brotherhood, we have within uh, Orthodox Christianity, 
of the resources, the Holy Spirit, to to uh, help us understand the Word of God. Now, I've used the word Orthodox Christianity to the fourth point. Consider the testimony of committed believers throughout the history of the church. Sometimes we can become just a little arrogant uh, that, you know, we are, we are living at the pinnacle of knowledge. And there were very wise men who lived, uh, you know, back during the time the Bible was being written. And there have been uh, wise people and people with illumination. And there is, I know that we have different denominations and that we have uh, denominational emphasis and oftentimes, I mean, I would say that most of us in this room are conservative Anabaptists, uh, one persuasion or the other, not because we came out of Toronto or New York City and discovered scripture and discovered, and this is the truth, it's because we were raised that way. And so, so were the Presbyterians, and so were the Baptists, and they were raised that way, many of them. And so we do need to give them a certain break to understand that, well, they, they had their cultural context as well, and, and they, can, they are sincere, uh, many of them. They're not just trying to be disobedient. Uh, they, there are reasons that they have, that we would say they have blinders on. And we have our own blinders as well. And so there is a, a stream of, of uh, can I say, orthodox interpretation of Scripture, of understanding of doctrine that, that goes throughout history that transcends our denominations somewhat. And there are things to, to learn. We can learn from other, uh, from other people, and we can learn... Uh, from people in our own particular history. We need to be careful, but we there are things to learn from other Christians, from other eras, and from other denominations. Uh, I won't say that cautiously, but I think that, that honestly that is true. We aren't necessarily at the pinnacle of biblical understanding. It's arrogant to think that we understand the Bible better than anyone else who went before. We have a lot to learn from believers throughout church history. And the fifth thing, then, as we think about uh, our point here of interpreting the Bible conscious of human limitation, beware of error in biblical interpretation through ignorance and deception. Uh, I won't turn to Romans, uh, Acts 18, 24-26, and having to do with ignorance, and then Romans 16, 17, and 18 having to do with deception. All right, I'd like to go on now to the matter of application. And, you know, I, I think that as I've talked about interpretation and as I want to talk about application, this is not uh, rocket science. It's, it's just pretty straightforward. And it... Uh, almost seems a little uh, pedestrian, uh, just a little, uh, maybe it's because I'm pedestrian in giving it, uh, that is, it just seems kind of routine and, and all that, but it is, I think it's just kind of straightforward, uh, 
of what we're talking about here. Let's think now about the application of the word. People like practical sermons. What makes a sermon practical? Does a sermon need to be experiential in nature? Does it need to avoid doctrine? Does it need to contain a lot of stories to be practical? Well, practical sermons are those that explain biblical truth and how biblical truth applies, pertains to our everyday lives. Practical sermons point out how biblical principles make a difference and apply to modern situations. Uh, A solid sermon contains both the exposition of Scripture, that is what it means, as well as the application of Scripture, and that is determining the response that God uh, wants us to have in light of, of His Word. How does God want us to change our minds? How does He want us to change our attitudes? How does He want us to change our behavior and to become more like Christ, more within His will, of greater service to Christ in His church, and in deeper relationship uh, with Him? And so... Uh, That is what we are striving to do in preaching and teaching is to uncover the meaning of the scripture and then, so what? What difference does that make in our lives? And that's what makes the sermon practical. Uh, Now I will insert that it's also helpful to include some illustrations in our teaching and preaching, perhaps both in explaining the scripture as well as in applying the scripture. However, We need to take care that the illustrations don't overwhelm uh, the content of of the message. Uh, I know that some illustrations are striking, and we remember those those illustrations. But uh, you know, let's be careful. This is a great illustration. Now, now, where's the text I can use to form a message out of this? (laughs) Concerning uh, our sermons as a whole, it's possible for us to devote a lot of time in the sermon at uh, making application without actually having laid an adequate foundation for a biblical teaching and exposition. And that perhaps is a greater temptation for those who have a greater gift of gab than for some of the rest of us. So some people can just get up and talk, and they can talk, and really didn't have to study all that much and they have something to say, and and can be making all this application when they should have been laying some groundwork, some foundation on which to to put that application. They haven't done the hard work of studying and teaching the meaning of Scripture. And so that's a lazy route of sermon preparation, is just to get up and talk and make so-called application off the top of your head. Uh, it's also a dangerous route. There's nothing more satisfying and edifying for a church than to be taught the meaning of Scripture, preferably and as often as suitable uh, from a passage of Scripture rather than from an assortment of verses from hither and yon. Now, I want to say just a little bit about expository preaching. Expository preaching is, in essence, when, when we are unfolding the meaning of a passage. Uh, you can preach. Uh, I recently preached on on uh, Ephesians 4.32, Be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And I preached just on that verse. I had three points from that verse, and that was expository preaching because I unfolded the meaning of that passage. It was a short passage. And then I preached on what I told you last night about 
First Timothy, First Corinthians, chapter eight, nine, and ten, into chapter eleven, verse one. That was expository preaching. It it had covered a larger section of scripture, but the points came from that passage. And so, expository preaching is when we are exposing the meaning of a passage of scripture, and our points come from that passage. Uh, expository preaching sometimes is a consecutive preaching on a longer section of Scripture. Uh, For instance, God spoke to us in units of Scripture. He spoke to us in the unit of a letter to the Philippians. He spoke to us in a unit of the letter to somewhere else. And it's legitimate to uh, uncover that unit of Scripture in consecutive messages. Uh, But we don't need to feel like that we have to Preach through the book of Second Peter in order to do expository preaching. Uh, expository preaching is is done. You you have a topic, and is there a passage in Scripture that addresses that topic? And and so you unfold the meaning of that topic. And so both things are legitimate in expository preaching, uncovering the meaning of a passage, or in consecutive messages, uncovering the the meaning of a larger uh, unit, uh, for instance, a, a, a book or a portion of a book. Uh, that type of expository preaching needs to be done with care because it, it is easy. It is a legitimate way to preach expositorily, but it is also easy, I think, to be very um, boring. Uh, it takes some effort to uncover that meaning and to feed the flock and to apply it. And sometimes we, I remember one person was preaching on Psalm 23 and he had been inspired by Philip Keller's book on Psalm 23. And after a while, it just kind of became okay, more of the same. Uh, I mean, he himself admitted that it was, it was hard to, to be, to be fresh. Um, and so, Expository preaching sometimes perhaps is misunderstood. Sometimes it gets a bad rap. Uh, it is a legitimate and and a very satisfying thing to to really uh, concentrate in our preaching to uncover the meaning of a passage, whether it is uh, a one morning stand or whether it is a consecutive uh, a preaching consecutively. I realize, I understand the need to address some topics, top, subjects topically, and I find, and in my role as as bishop, and I have assignment for more than one church, that that as as a bishop, I sometimes find myself preaching more rather than being the meat and potatoes preacher in the church. I, I'm more addressing specific issues, and so I am not, uh, you know, working my way through passages of scripture. I'm more speaking to this issue or that issue or, or the or the other issue. And so I understand the need to address some topics or subjects topically. But what, whether we're dealing with something topically, pulling passages from here or from there, or whether we're dealing, even if it's topical, even as we're dealing with a main passage of Scripture, it's important that we explain the meaning, meaning of the passage as a basis for application. 
Nevertheless, I think that we would often do better spending less time filling up our sermon with cross-referencing and parallel passages and spend more time in application. I remember uh, some of you may have had my father as a teacher. He used to teach here years ago. Uh, he's, he's no longer living, but as a young minister, I preached uh, something from uh, James. I think I preached on the tongue uh, there in that passage of James. And afterwards, my dad told me, "And how would you like to have been a young minister with your dad as a deacon and your uncle as the bishop? Uh, my uncle by marriage. But uh, my dad told me, and he was complimentary, but he, he indicated to me that I didn't say how you were supposed to do this. In other words, I, I didn't carry my sermon on through. I talked about the danger of, you know, the tongue and all that, but then I didn't, I didn't really bring in the how-to aspect. And so uh, we need to be careful that we don't spend, it's like, you know, you're studying a Sunday school lesson and you spend so much time on the first part that you got two more sections yet to do, but the clock ran out on you. And so in our preaching, uh, let's be careful that we don't spend so much time uh, being redundant. And I don't, I don't want to be misunderstood, uh, but that we're just reinforcing what is there and, and is before us by going to parallel passages and cross-references that we fail to move the message forward and bring it to its so what and bring it to its conclusion. What I'm advocating is neither the easy and entertaining route of mostly stories and application nor the boring route of repetition which fails to adequately answer the question of so what. Uh, rather that we ground the, the church in the, uh, in, by feeding it the meaning of word, of the word and then help people connect the dots by adequate, uh, spending adequate time on how God would have us to respond to this teaching. Uh, it's, it's amazing how poorly sometimes people do it connecting the dots. And you can even connect the dots for them. And you don't necessarily, it's not necessarily going to be accepted or, or, or sunk in. And so we need to connect those dots and not just assume. Now, we don't need to play the role of Holy Spirit. But to say, now, so this is what this means. This is how this works out in everyday life. And this is how it uh, encourages or directs or corrects our lives. And sprinkling in some helpful illustrations as we go along. Um, much of what the Bible, much of the Bible is so clear that the response desired by God on one hand is obvious. For instance, be ye kind one to another. It uh, doesn't take a lot of work either to understand the meaning or or uh, the response desired by God, but even that simple and straightforward command to be kind one to another uh, raises some questions. Now, one thing it does is it, I talked about the single meaning in, intended by the author, author, but it also has multiple applications. And so being kind to one to another, well, it has a single meaning, but it has many applications. How many different ways can we show kindness? And to be real pointed, is there someone you're not being very kind to? And what is the response God desires of you? So it's helpful to put kindness in real life detail. 
now, and so you can develop, you know, by applying different different areas of life in which which we need to be kind or in which we are not being kind. Well, that is fairly straightforward. But then, when you get to something like this, um, sell all that thou hast and distribute to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me, or he teacheth my hands to war, so that a bow of steel is broken by mine arms. How does God want us to respond in real life to those verses? And when we think about responding uh, to biblical teaching, two questions arise. One is, to whom does the teaching apply? And the second is, how do I determine the response God's want? And hopefully we'll find some answers to those questions as we first consider a method of application and then some guidelines for application and I, I say guidelines I'm not saying that I've that there's no questions in my own mind but they at least at least there are guidelines okay so I think I've got about six points here first since the Bible was written within specific historical contexts cultural settings and immediate purposes identify timeless and universal truth and principles as a basis for application. All right, the Bible was written in specific context, uh, historical and cultural and immediate context. Uh, things were happening, and, and so we identify timeless truth and principles as a basis for application. You know, rather than laying out uh, everything for us in, in the nature as an unimaginative operator's manual, God wonderfully revealed himself and his will to us through through the flow of time as people lived out their lives in different settings and as they faced varying needs. And so, for instance, God speaks to us through the prophets as the prophets addressed Israel's needs. God speaks to us through the Apostle Paul as the Apostle Paul addressed the needs of the church in Corinth who were living in a very wicked city. And so God is speaking to us as in these very real-life uh, situations uh, within history and human experience. And it's very interesting that God was able to reveal everything he wanted to us within the flow of history. He didn't need to come to the... I mean, most of, of, the, of the Bible is, is couched in real life. Uh, you know, it's, it's what was happening. And even, the, you know, the prophets and the letters and all... That was in people's real life experience, and God didn't have to come to the end of Revelation and say, well, you know, there's about 10 or 20 points here that somehow or another didn't fit in uh, anywhere else in the Bible, and so I'm going to need to add an addendum here to gather some, some loose ends. He, he, everything we needed to know is, is there within that flow of, of people's everyday life. And we might say that the historical context and the cultural setting and the immediate occasion or purpose in which this happened is somewhat like the skeleton of, of um, God's Word. It's what gives God's Word its structure and its shape and, and embodies God's Word. And our task in understanding the Scripture, in a sense, is to identify the cuts of meat that we need uh, to prepare and serve to the people. And I'm suggesting that the cuts of meat are the universal and timeless principles and truths of Scripture. Now, there is a sense in which there is some 
pre-cooked things in the Bible. You might say some direct commands or some direct precepts uh, that are they don't need to be prepared much. But like I've said, even be ye kind, which is really straightforward, or uh, do not steal. Sometimes even those things will not. Is this stealing or is this not stealing? You know, is I'm, I'm on the job and and this situation arises. Am I? Am, am I stealing from my employee, employer or not? Or employee or not? And so even things that really look straightforward uh, sometimes need some preparation. Now, this thing of identifying universal truth or timeless principles, for instance, uh, Noah was a righteous man. That is a historical fact. And, and there's... You know, well, you can you can work on that, but when you transpose that into a universal truth uh, or a his, or a timeless principle, it comes out something more like this: that men of God live righteously in in immoral times. And when you can restate it that way, and you're using uh, Noah as a as an example of that, you are. Just just in your very title, for instance, you're already making application of, of Scripture. And I find that oftentimes, in, uh, well, oftentimes if we can state our outline in terms of universal truth or timeless principles, we have already, uh, we are already applying the Scripture in our very outline. Uh, so when we say that Men of God live righteously in the immoral times. We are understanding the meaning of Scripture, and that is already in applying the Scripture in, in that way. And so, as we go through Scripture, we, we identify truth that is timeless. It might have happened on the road to Jericho, but it, there's something happened there that is timeless for us and is universal. Uh, even though it happened here or it was directed there or, or whatever. And identifying universal and timeless principles is the work of, of Bible study. Uh, and it forms the basis for application. Now in our study we identify timeless principles and universal truth differently depending on whether the passage is a, is a uh, story passage or whether it is a Teaching passage. If it is a story passage, a narrative, then we ask to we can ask the question: What is the passage showing about God, about people, about sin, about redemption, about living for God? And if it's a teaching passage, then the question is: What is the passage teaching about God and about redemption and about human nature and about living for God? Now. Let me close uh, this section on this on timeless principles with a with a qualifier that identifying timeless principles, universal truth, uh, certainly has its place. However, we can wrongly reduce the Bible to timeless principles uh, in an approach that bypasses God. You simply follow these principles, this list of principles, and life will be successful. And so we need to be careful not to do that. Uh, some motivational speaker or Norman Vincent Peale or somebody could have done that 
has come up. You follow these ten things and your life will be successful. Uh, that's not what really we're after. We're after a relationship with God and living life out of that relationship. And we find the, the timeless truth and the universal principles uh, involved in that. All right, the second guideline Every teaching of Scripture is to be received universally unless the Bible itself limits the audience, either in the context of the passage itself or in other biblical teaching. Every teaching of Scripture is to be received universally unless the Bible itself limits its, the audience, either in the context of the passage itself or in other biblical teaching. So the burden of whether or not to apply some teaching of Scripture lies on Scripture itself, not on my hunch that it doesn't apply to my time and culture. So so how does the Bible do this? How does the Bible indicate uh, to us uh, whether something is to be applied or whether it's not to be applied? The prohibition against eating pork in Leviticus 11.7 no longer applies because it was part of the Old Testament religious system that has been fulfilled in Christ. And so you can compare that to Colossians 2.14. So Bible, the Bible itself indicates that that is no longer in effect. On the other hand, greet one another with a holy kiss still applies because Nowhere does the Bible limit the audience or indicate that the point was just to say hi to one another or to give one another a holy hug. And then there is the command, uh, Jesus' command to the rich young man to sell all that you have and give to the poor. But if you compare that and so we're, now we're dealing with, with two New Testament passages. You compare that with 1 Timothy six seventeen to 19 it's apparent that at least uh, for some that voluntary, it's at least apparent to some people, okay, that voluntary poverty is not a universal requirement of all believers for all believers in all places. And so there is a matter of, of, of interpreting what Jesus told the rich young ruler in light of what the epistles, which are a divine commentary on the Gospels, divine filling out the Gospels of what, of what that says. Okay, the third guideline, since the Bible is a progressive revelation of God's will, culminating in Christ and the New Testament. Okay, let me start over again. Since the Bible is a progressive revelation of God's will, culminating in Christ, and the New Testament supersedes the old, all doctrine and ethics must be based on the New Testament. Since the Bible is a progressive revelation of God's will, culminating in Christ, and since the New Testament supersedes the Old, all doctrine and ethics must be based on the New Testament. Now, we've already uh, dealt 
yesterday with the um, this matter of the continuity and discontinuity in between the two testaments. Uh, and so how does this, the two testaments, relate to applying the Bible since the New Testament supersedes the Old? All doctrine must be based on the New Testament. And the key word is based. It's not legitimate to base a doctrine on Old Testament teaching alone. However, if the doctrine or the commandment is based on the New Testament, the Old Testament can be used in support since that indicates a continuity in God's will. For example, what about sex discrimination in attire? Sex distinction, I'm sorry. What about sex distinction in attire? Where do you go to to preach that doctrine? And so we know it's pretty straightforward in the Old Testament there in Deuteronomy 22. And and so I asked this question of a person who I respected and and who was was my bishop for at least part of the time as, as a young person by John Risser, some of you knew. And and he said, well, First Corinthians 11. First Corinthians 11 teaches sex distinction. And so that is the New Testament basis. And then uh, Deuteronomy 22 is uh, consistent with God's will uh, in the New. On the other hand, uh, Jeremiah 12, 15 to 27, the instruction to swear by the Lord's name is countermanded by teaching in the New Testament that we are not to swear. And so we base our doctrine not to swear uh, not on the Old Testament, but on the New Testament, that that something has changed. And we develop our position on the relationship of the Christian to the state on the New Testament. You know, the fact that David <coughs> was a man after God's own heart and that he was a warrior, great warrior, really has nothing to do with it. It's that the New Testament is clear, and that's where we get that's where we get our direction in terms of our uh relationship to the church and the state and our ethic uh, toward our fellow man. Now, I'd like to make one final, final comment regarding the, the relationship of the Old Testament to, to the New, that we sometimes present Christians who are not Anabaptists as believing in a flat Bible. And, and I question whether that is accurate or fair. Now, while evangelicals, for example come out differently than we on Christian involvement in government, uh, including military and law enforcement, do they embrace polygamy? Do they embrace Old Testament dietary standards? And, and so to say that evangelicals or mainline Protestants believe in a flat Bible, I think that we're pointing out a, somewhat of a straw man uh, to them. Or, or putting, making a straw man regarding them. Uh, you know, whatever reference they they use to the Old Testament, uh, such as David, to support what they would consider New Testament justification for 
for government involvement, it's not because they see no theological distinction or ethical distinctions between the two covenants. And so I would just say, let's be careful. Uh, it's, it's easy to, have you ever been misunderstood by, by your position misunderstood by Calvinists, for instance? I was in a setting. Okay, I'll, 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 I'll say it. I went to an evangelical Bible college. And, and so uh, one time there was a fellow student who came to my house, and he was Calvinistic, and he wanted me, he was strong Calvinistic, and he wanted me to uh, explain to him the, my position, uh, the Arminian position, because Calvinists view us as people who believe in salvation by works. And we believe them, view them as once saved, always saved. And to a certain degree, we're kind of misrepresenting. A, a Calvinist uh, sometimes, in their best, is he who perseveres to the end are the ones who are saved. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm, I don't believe in Reformed theology. But that's a, that's, that's a whole lot better position to say, well, once saved, always saved. And that's how it plays out on the popular level. I won't deny it. Uh, but I tried to explain to him, to this fellow student, our position, that is our relationship with God, our being in right relationship with God, is a dynamic situation. It's not just a legal transaction that you somehow or another make this legal transaction and now you are... Once a son, always a son, but it is, it is something that is dynamic, and, and, it, and it continues on. So I've kind of gone on a rabbit trail here, but we need to be careful that we represent other people correctly, even if we disagree with them. We like to be represented correctly ourselves. Four, uh, an event or happening, the historical record... So we're talking about the historical record. An event or happening should not be considered normative and an expression of God's universal will solely on the basis that it is recorded in the Bible. It must be evaluated in light of direct Bible teaching. Now I want to go back and pick one thing up. The person who was president of that college was a Southern Baptist. And he said this, he was Calvinistic in his theology. But he said, there is no security in sin. So be careful what you accuse other people of. But then there are people, oh, he, uh, there was a man who ran a feed mill. And uh, he was kind of, you know, a scrappy man up from the bootstrap sort of a fellow. And he didn't go to church, but when he was when he died of a heart attack or something recently, I didn't go to the funeral. But uh, someone who did said they preached him right into heaven. You don't need to go to go to church to be a Christian. He didn't go to church, and so you know it works both ways. I'm just saying, let's be careful what we accuse other people of, of believing. But we're talking now about the historical record. For the most part, we tend to apply the literal meaning of direct teaching, but what about those things that are recorded in the historical record, such as the use of the lot to replace Judas? Uh, or what about laying aside your garment before washing feet? Or what about the use of unleavened bread in the communion service? And this guideline 
is saying that we don't consider events that happened in the historical record as normative expressions of God's universal will solely on the fact that it is recorded in the Bible. They must be evaluated in light of direct teaching of the Bible. Uh, if direct teaching of the Bible validates the issue at hand, then it must represent God's normal and universal will. If, however, the event or happening is not supported by direct biblical teaching, does that mean then it is necessarily outside of God's will? No, not necessarily. So as we apply this guideline to the use of the lot, it means that the lot is not God's direct command or necessarily his normative or universal expression of God's will as the only method for choosing leaders. Uh, and I'm not knocking the lot, okay? I'm, I'm just uh, using this as a guideline. The Bible gives no direct teaching on the matter. So the lot is an option, but it's not required. And, you know, Paul and Barnabas, they, was it on that missionary journey, they came back through and they appointed elders in every city. It doesn't say whether they used the lot or whether they didn't. It doesn't say the process. It just says that it happened. And we know that in this case of Judas, that it happened. And so it is not a direct expression that this is God's only way to carry that out. However, in the absence of direct teaching, the use of the lot is consistent with known New Testament practice and a valid way to choose leaders when God's will is not otherwise made known. And so things that happen in the biblical record and are not said, now this is God's will, well, it's consistent with what we know was within God's will, and so we can use it, but we cannot pound the Pope and say this is the only way it has to be done. Let's apply that to a couple other examples. The fact that believers spoke in tongues when they received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost doesn't mean that speaking in tongues is normative uh, for everyone, uh, for all believers. Direct Bible, biblical teaching is that God gives gifts according to his will. And so uh, we don't take that speaking in tongues as normative. Paul's words to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, is normative because that is consistent with direct biblical teaching in Romans 10. And so when things happen in, in the narrative, uh, unless it's backed up by direct biblical teaching, it may be consistent with God's will, but it is not necessarily universal uh, truth for every occasion. Number five. While the Bible was written in a specific cultural context and teaching of Scripture is universal in its scope, again, let me restate that. While the Bible was written in a specific cultural context, the teaching of Scripture is universal in its scope and must be applied to transform culture. While the Bible was written in a specific cultural context, the teaching of Scripture is universal in its scope and must be applied to transform culture. We cannot and should not try to reproduce all the historical contexts and cultural settings. Uh, scripture is written in such a way to fit any culture of the world. It's written to change culture, not uh, 
when we eat breakfast or what we eat for breakfast or even how we eat breakfast, that's not what scripture is given for in terms of culture, but to change who we are and how we live and what we do to conform ourselves to the will of God and to the image of Christ. And even in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 18, the Israelites were saying, do not do as to Israel as the Egyptians do. That was culture. Don't do as the Egyptian culture in their sinful uh, practices. And so specific teachings and applications of Scripture must be applied specifically. For instance, uh, there's no indication that long hair and head coverings for or a covered head for women and short hair and no religious covering for men is not universal. It's for everyone in, in all cultures. In fact, the Bible says it was the custom in all churches, even though some apparently wanted to be contentious about it. And so it must be applied to all cultures. Now, just how it is applied, the Bible does not say. And so the Bible says it must, should be applied, indicates it is universal. And so specific teaching and timeless principles can be applied in a way that is suitable to any given culture. And so the Bible was given within a culture, we take uh, the, the teaching of Scripture, and it can be applied to any culture in, in different ways. All right, sixth, the last point, openness before God, a desire to know and do His will, and prayer provide a context, provides a context in which God will show us how to respond to Him in faith and obedience. Openness before God, a desire to know and do His will, and prayer provides a context in which God will show us how to respond to him in faith and obedience. Mark Twain is supposed to have said something to the effect that it was not what he didn't know that bothered him. It was uh, what he didn't understand, but it was what he did. And in contrast, and I'd like to close with, uh, with Psalm 86, verse 11. Psalm 86, Verse 11. Teach me thy way, O Lord, I will walk in thy truth. Unite my heart, or give me an undivided heart to fear thy name. And if we make David's prayer our own, God will show us how he would have us to respond in light of his word.